few of the words from that the song that we sang, The Power of the Cross. Um, the second line of the fourth verse says, Through your suffering, uh, I am free. And I wonder if you've considered this morning that there's a great invitation uh, for the Christian and for the non-Christian to believe our sermon text this morning, that our lives would be changed. And for the Christian, it's to grow and to increase in that faith and that love and that affection and to walk out changed. And for the non-Christian, it's to come to Christ uh, for the first time. So would you trust me together that God would do that in our hearts uh, through Revelation uh, in chapter 21, verses 1 uh, through 8 this morning. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes with will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Please pray with me. Father, you commanded uh, John to write these words because they're faithful and true and because they are guaranteed by your power and authority as the Alpha and the Omega. And you commanded that he would write them so that we would read them. And now, having read them, I must preach them. And together we must hear them. And we pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, we have journeyed for so long through so much in Revelation. And now here we are in the new heaven and the new earth. And these promises leap from the page. Oh, Father, grant that we would have eyes to see these wondrous things that you have placed here. Grant that we would have hearts that would be full of soil that is fertile under your Spirit's ministry, that we would receive the Word in such a way that it would bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold in our lives and from us to others. 
and grant, Father, that, that this would be a saving morning for many. Lord, as they, they see the generosity of your heart, Father, free everyone here from cynicism about your heart and about the kindness of your intentions. Come and save by the power of your Son, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, just cannot remain calm in the face of eternity. I can't remain calm as God bears his heart here. And I pray and have prayed that you will not remain calm either. Do you see that there are two ways out of this text? Not one and not three or four. There are two ways to walk from this text. And one is given in verse 7, and it is a promise to Christians. And it is that he who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. There's a, a path of perseverance and hope and steadfastness, a path of faith through a present that will often present difficulties and trials and momentary light afflictions and in which we will be tempted to doubt the goodness of God's intentions in His heart. But there is this promise that God speaks into the present. He moves from the vision of the future now to its application to the present here at the very end of the passage. And He, he makes this amazing thrust, this amazing connection of dots to, to Christians saying, Overcome. Persevere if you do overcome. And overcome means reach the end by faith. He who overcomes shall inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. That's path number one. And path number two is the path of those who will not repent. Path number one is open to anyone this morning who will turn from their sins in repentance and trust in Christ alone, who will view this vision of the new heaven and the new earth and respond to it by saying, I give my life to the Christ who ushers in this new heaven and new earth. Path one is available to you. But path two, which is what is described in verse eight, is the path of those who will not repent, who spurn Christ, who reject Him, and who mock in their own disinterest in the Gospel the generosity of God. And it is a very serious path. Here, uh, verse 8, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. God is just reminding all of us at the very end of our passage what the stakes are this morning. So whichever group you're in, I pray that you will heed God's word and move and by the way, if you're non-Christian and you're wondering, well, wait a second, that's an awfully harsh list, which, you know, those people in, in verse 7, they must all be a bunch of goody two-shoes. Well, you don't know us. And let me just say that everyone in here who is a Christian would describe themselves if they know themselves for who they really were before they were Christ in exactly the terms that verse 8 describes people. 
And the difference is that God's grace has broken in and knees have bowed to the reign of Christ. We're not better than you. So it's an amazing vision that God gives us here. He lays his heart bare. And why would God give a warning in verse 8? Why why would he give a warning? He would give a warning to woo you. A warning to, to pull you away from spiritual suicide and to lead you to his son. The greatest love issues the most urgent warnings. And any mom or dad knows that that's the case. So we're here. In the new heaven and the new earth. I just gave you the end of my sermon, by the way, right at the beginning. I just wanted to make sure that if nothing else got said, that did. So here we are, Revelation 21 and 22. And God is laying his heart bare. He's just laying it bare. We're at the climax of the book. What has God prepared for those who love him? What, what have the purposes of God? What are the... What are the purposes of God that have been ripening from all eternity for His people? What is it that He, what has His goal been in redemption? What has His goal been in history? Why did He send His Son into the world? Why has He shown so much patience toward us in our sin? What is He moving and guiding history toward? And here He is, laying His heart bare, showing us what His goals are. And this is how you know a person. Right? The way you know somebody is by listening to what drives them, what their goals are. And if you have a relationship with somebody, but you don't know what their goals and purposes are in life, your knowledge of them is superficial, isn't it? If you don't know what what organizes a person, if you don't know what shapes their decisions, if you don't know what guides those decisions, what values, what goals they have, you don't really know them. And what God is showing us in these chapters is what his goals are. And that means what he's showing us is who he is. And so this is very important uh, as a passage for both Christians and non-Christians. Because if you're a Christian, we, we need, we need to, to know God as he is. And what matters to him. And, and I pray that, that for us who know Christ this morning, that our hope would be strengthened and our joy would be expanded because of who we see God to be here. And, and for non-Christians, this is so important for you. And what I've prayed for you is, you know, there's a panorama here in this text of God's kind intentions toward the world. And God is showing it to you. And I've prayed that this panorama uh, would lead you to repentance and faith in Christ this very morning. There are two headings I, uh, I have for our uh, time this morning. I, I realize I may only get through one of them, so um, we'll just look at it this way. The two headings are uh, first, the visions of the future, which are in verses one through four. This is the, the future of blessings that God has prepared for his people. And the second heading would be verses five through eight, where the Lord takes what he does is after he gives the visions of the future for his people in verses one through four, he then transitions from the future to speak directly into the present about the relevance of uh, those visions. And that's what verses five through eight are. So let's uh, let's push off this morning. And the first observation 
uh, that is so critical to see here, but easy to miss because we're breaking the chapters up, is that every uh, blessing that is, is identified for us, not just in 21, 1 through 8, but in all of 21 and 22, every single one of these blessings is directly connected to the work of Jesus Christ. So everything we see here is a fruit of Christ's labors of love on behalf of his people. Everything we see, every blessing I'm going to talk about this morning, a new heaven and a new earth, an eternal home with God, communion with God, uh, God's comfort, the blessings of, of uh, being part of his people eternally, all those things, every one of those blessings and all of their implications, they all come from Christ. They've all been purchased for us by the Lamb and so if we read verses, excuse me, chapters 21 and 22, if we read them without seeing and celebrating that every single one of these things flows directly to God's people through Christ, if we don't acknowledge that and celebrate it, then we have totally misunderstood these chapters. They are the fruits of Christ's labors of love on our behalf. And just think of it, my friends. What is the greatest blessing God has ever bestowed on us? He's given us a Redeemer. There is a Redeemer. Jesus, God's own Son, who was born of a woman and born under the law, that He might redeem us who were under the curse of the law. Every blessing from God comes to us through Christ. Paul says it in Ephesians 1, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So what we are looking at is the triumph of Christ. And if, if you want to understand how this connects with last week when we looked at the scene of final judgment in chapter 20 and we saw, saw the two books, the first book, which is all of our names and all of our deeds, and the book of life, which is the names of Christ's people, the names of many and the deeds of one. Right? The names of many and the deeds of one man, Jesus Christ. If your name is in the book of life, you will enjoy these blessings. If you want to know how this week connects with last week, it is this. Last week, uh, chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, they show us the fate of those whose names are only written in the first book. And now these verses, uh, really these two chapters, expand. You want to know what blessings now have been purposed by God for those whose names are found written in the Lamb's book of life? Well, that's what chapters 21 and 22 are. And the first of these blessings is the blessing of our eternal home. A new heaven and a new earth. That's verse 1. That's the first thing John sees and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. A new heaven and a new earth. We're back. It sounds like Genesis 1, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how we meet God in the Bible. We're not given some abstract theology of Him. We're introduced to the God of the universe 
by being told about him that he created the heavens and the earth. And now his portrait is filled out. As we hear in the climax of the Bible, a new heaven and a new earth. What does this mean? There's great mystery here. There's all kinds of debate about this, and I don't want to spend time on that. I want to focus on at least two things, just really two things that are are clear from the text. The first is this. In the new heaven and the new earth, somehow somehow the cosmos is going to be transformed, okay? It's going to be transformed materially in some sense, but also ethically, because what's going to happen is that evil will be totally eradicated in all of its effects and its presence. That's what's meant by this phrase, there shall no longer be any sea. That's not a statement about whether or not there are going to be oceans in the new heaven and the new earth. It's a statement that, it's a symbolic statement that invokes this Old Testament imagery of the sea as a symbol of evil because of its unpredictability and its chaos. And we've already seen this in Revelation chapter 13. Where does the first beast come from? He comes out of the sea. So within Revelation, because within the Old Testament, the sea is a symbol for evil. And what John is saying here, what this vision is saying through John to us, is that evil in the new heaven and the new earth, once death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, as we saw at the end of chapter 20, there's not going to be any more evil. No presence of evil, no effects of evil, no danger of evil. And in the new heavens and the new earth, there are going to be no threats to the people of God. Wow. No dangers. Amazing. The second thing to notice about our new eternal home is that it will be not arise it will arise not from the destruction of the cosmos, but from their transformation. God is not going to destroy the first heaven and the first earth, but he is going to transform it and liberate it. And we know that because of verse 5, among other things. Do you notice what God says there? He says, Behold, I am making all things new. Somehow in this great mystery, what God is going to do is... And he's already begun it in Christ and in Christians. He is, he is transforming from the inside out this cosmos that has been infected by the presence of sin and rebellion against him. And God is showing his tremendous power and triumph over evil, not by scraping the whole cosmos down and starting over again, but from the very heart of what has been tainted and harmed by sin. He is, he's entered it after all in the person of his son and from within he is changing it. And friends, what a picture of the triumph of God. If God had had to destroy the first creation because of sin's presence, well then, who would have won? Then Satan would have succeeded. God's triumph over sin and evil is displayed especially because, or particularly because, He redeems and renews the same humanity. He redeems and renews the same earth that had been corrupted and polluted by sin. God and His greatness 
are magnificent here. And the second thing to notice about this is not just how it, how it makes the, the triumph of God so clear that he's going to transform the, the first heavens and the first earth rather than destroy them, but also how, how this emphasizes and shows us the grace of God. Right? The grace of God and the way, friends, this is important to see. This is how this connects with your life. I know you're probably sitting there thinking, well, what is that? Okay, new cosmos, okay? So what? what does that have to do with my life? Well, friends, don't you see? This is how God deals with people. It's not just how he deals with the universe. It's how he deals with people. He doesn't just walk away from the cosmos. And he doesn't just walk away from people. He takes you. He takes us as we are and finds us and redeems us in Christ and washes us in our sins and sanctifies us and justifies us. He doesn't insist that we clean ourselves up before we come to him. He doesn't walk away from us. That's the whole story of Christ's ministry. He didn't walk away from a world that had walked away from him. But because of great love which he bore, even in the face of our sin, he sent his son into that world. Oh, friends, he's ready to do it in your life this morning. Oh, don't you leave here being cynical about God. He's ready. Are you? He's willing. Are you? Do you want to be willing? Ask Him to make you willing. Ask Him to do that. He created the universe. He transforms it from the inside out. He can change your heart. You say... But, Mike, you don't know me. Yeah, I do. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. Okay? I know you. I'm a sinner. Who needs a Savior? You're just like me. You say, you don't know my sins. I say, you don't know the Savior. You don't know the greatness of His achievements. You have not familiarized yourself yet with what He has borne in His body on that tree. And I invite you to take a long look and walk with us at the greatness of His work. Oh, God's grace is real. And He is not willing to walk away from any. So the first blessing is our new eternal home. The second is the blessing of our glorification. This is verse 2. You see the, the vision. John, the next thing that John sees is... He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. He's not seeing a, a literal city. That's not a literal Jerusalem. The holy city is, is in, within revelation. That's, that's a term that's used to describe the church. We saw that in chapter 11. So what John is seeing here is he's seeing a vision of the church. Jeru it's called the New Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the place where God's throne was. That's where the temple was. That's where his presence was uniquely known. And now, right, that's not in Israel. That's in the new Israel. That's in us. We're the church. We are the dwelling of God in the Spirit. Ephesians 2. And what John sees is he sees a, a vision of the church. Now, now, hold on here because we're going to see this play back and forth in chapters 21 and 22. 
the, the New Jerusalem, the bride, is both a people and a place. This image is so overwhelming. The beauty of what John has shown is so overwhelming that sometimes the lines between these things gets blurred in these next two chapters. But, but for now, I want you to think about it as the church, the people of God. And what John sees is that the people of God are going to be glorified. Beautified eternally. If verse 1 was a picture of the renewed cosmos, the renewed creation, then verse 2 is a picture, a vision of the renewed people of God. And here's a vision. Here's a vision of what we will be like, Christians, when we are fully conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, when God has fully glorified us. On the day when not only the penalty of sin and its power have been eradicated from our lives, but when its presence has. And notice how beautiful this vision is. Two things I want you to see. First, God's generosity to his people and then in this image and then also his joy over his people. And both of these are so important and they're relevant for both non-Christians and Christians. First, think about God's generosity to his people. This beauty that, um, that he sees that she has, she's adorned, right? She's made ready. This is the people of God adorned. Adorned by God. She's coming down out of heaven from God in her beauty, which means that it is God Himself who has given her this beauty. She has not beautified herself up and then ascended into heaven. No, she's coming down out of heaven from God. And so the point is that all the beauty and all the glory that she possesses, all the the preparation that has been made for her, all the adornment that she carries, this is God's work in her. This is God's gift to her. It is His gift. It is His workmanship. Now, Christians, I want you to take careful note of that. Our glorification is God's achievement and not ours. Remember Romans 8.30? Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, these he glorified. What a joy to know that our ultimate Eternal beauty and glorification is God's gift to us. This is what God is doing in us. We, we don't see it because it happens from one degree of glory to the next. We, it feels so often like sanctification is such a slow process. And it, it's often like trench warfare, isn't it? And it feels like you take a step forward and then, oh my goodness, I'm five steps back. Doesn't it feel that way sometimes? Oh my goodness. And, you know, in that process and the difficulty, how hard it is to gain territory. I mean, what happens in the beginning of the Christian life so often is that God in his grace will give you huge swaths of new territory very quickly. But then. What happens is he doesn't want to grow weed. 
He's growing a redwood. So he sends a drought. So the roots go down. And sometimes in that process, we grow discouraged. We lose heart. That's why Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore, we do not lose heart. For though our outer man is decaying, doesn't look like I'm making much progress. Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. God is faithful to His promise and He's showing us the future, Christians, so that we will not grow discouraged. If our glorification is God's gift, then every increment of progress we make in sanctification is God's gift to us. It is by His grace. And you and I are neither to boast over our progress nor despair over our lack of it. Right? I want to call you to remember with me the promise of God in Philippians 1.6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you and in me will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And we are being shown its perfection in verse 2. So keep fighting. And my non-Christian friends, what does this have to do with you? Well, it... It has a lot to do with you because what this does, this image of a church or a people being beautified by God and adorned by God clarifies for you what the gospel is and what it isn't. You see, this means that the gospel is not a self-beautification process or a process by which we make ourselves pretty, if you will, in holiness to present ourselves to God. That is not what the gospel is. If, if you think that you have to polish your spiritual apple or collect a trophy in order to present it to God, then you, you don't know the gospel. And I have such good news for you this morning. That is not the gospel. The gospel is we come to God when we are not beautiful. And it is He and He alone who makes us beautiful in Christ. By conforming us to the beauty and perfection of His Son. That is God's gift. What a relief that is. That's so lovely. And then notice God's joy over His people. Why else is the bride language in there? Notice, he doesn't say, well, well, he emphasizes the fact in the vision that it, it's a wedding day image. Right? There's this picture of a bride coming down from God and she's adorned and beautiful in her wedding dress and she's being given by the Father, as it were, to the Son. He's presenting the bride whom He has beautified through the work of His Son and He's now presenting that bride to the Son. This is what all the preparations have been for. This is what God Himself has been working for. This is why He sent His Son into the world for this day when the church would be presented to Christ beautified. And that's a happy day. That's a happy day. God takes great joy in saving people. He is not a reluctant redeemer. I want you to know that. The cross is not about a willing son gaining leverage over an unwilling father 
to persuade him to redeem a people. No, the work of Christ and the gospel is all the overflow of God's heart, which results in the son being sent into the world. Why? Because God loves to save. He delights to show his saving mercy and to scatter it in the world through Christ. And so, friends, I. I warn you. If you leave here. Cynical about God. It's not because you haven't heard the truth. He's not a reluctant redeemer. And he stands ready to receive you this morning. So Christians, God's, God takes joy in you. He's showing you the future of that great day so that you will be assured today of his joy in you as someone who's in Christ. If you are in Christ, God is omnipotently for you. If God is for you, Christian, who can be against you? You see that day? This is the day He is carrying you toward. This is why He is working in your life. This is His goal for your life, that you would be adorned and beautified by Him, that He might give you to the Son. And He'll be very happy on that day. And my non-Christian friends, how could you possibly, in the face of this kindness, how could you possibly remain disinterested about this God? Bored by him. So as you hear, as you hear, you know, multiple times this morning to to a call from God's word to to turn from your sins and to trust and trust yourself to Christ. I, I want to plead with you. I, I want to ask you. This question, does it make a difference to you to understand that when God is issuing those calls to you, does it make a difference to you to understand that what he wants to do, what his objective is in in addressing you personally, is to free you and to beautify you? So you be assured by this image and the other portions of the text of his kind intentions toward you. Let's look at the next blessing, which is the blessing of communion with God. Um, And that's in verses uh, three and four, two aspects of it. Look at verse three. Now, John, hears a voice. Verses one and two were the visions. And now verse three through four, there's an interpretation of the visions. It's given. It's probably not God's voice, uh, perhaps an angel's voice coming from the throne. But but. In any event, the voice says this, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he shall dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be among them. Now, what's pictured there is the full reconciliation of God and man. Right. God now dwelling with man. And you notice there are four promises in that verse three. And three of them are the same promise said three times. Three times what's emphasized is that God is going to dwell with man. And then in the middle of all that is the promise that man, we shall be his people. Those of us in Christ shall be his people. There's this we're surrounded by God, as it were, dwelling with us and us with him. The nearness of God is what's being emphasized. This is the goal that God has been working toward from all of creation. I mean, from all of Scripture. Friends, that's what was happening in the garden. 
Right? Man and woman living in communion with God. Then man's sin intervenes. And what happens? Adam and Eve are ejected from the garden and ejected from that communion. And yet, and yet God's original purpose that, man, that God and his image bearers would dwell in communion together. God did not abandon that plan. But the first step in the recovery of that plan was that Adam and Eve would be ejected from the garden. And then God comes in with this great vision of his presence dwelling in the midst of even a sinful people with the tabernacle and the temple. See, in the garden, his presence dwelt with sinless people until the fall. Then they're ejected. Is it possible for God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people? Well, within certain parameters and restrictions, which is what the tabernacle and the temple and all those priestly regulations, the Old Testament, they depict, right? God is there. He's there in that Holy of Holies, but there are barriers. But there's a story there of God's determination to dwell in the midst of His people. But what about all the sin that separates people from dwelling in harmony with God? What about all that? Is there ever going to be an answer for all these offerings and these priestly restrictions that restrict access, direct access to God only to the high priest and only on one day a year and then not without blood? Is there any hope that God could ever dwell with man closer than that? And of course, there is a hope. And more than that, there is an answer. Yes, God can dwell and does Dwell in the midst of a sinful people. He comes in the person of His Son. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory. God sent His Son into the world to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. To bring the solution. To be the solution of bearing the penalty for those sins and in his own ministry and in his own body, removing all the barriers that separate God and men. And he now becomes the way to God. The Son and his work becomes the way to God. And what we're seeing in Revelation 21 is that that mission has been accomplished. And God's presence is no longer mediated what we will live with Him face to face. Yes, now we've, we, we are the temples of God by the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, His Spirit indwells in us, but there, there is a longing for face-to-face communion that we see uh, fulfilled here in Revelation 21 and 22. There is an even greater reality, friends, that awaits us than being indwelled by God's Spirit, which by itself is a staggering thing to consider. Right to be indwelt by the third person of the Trinity. How great must the cleansing work of Christ be that he would, His blood would be so powerful to cleanse us from sin that God would take up residence within us. That is amazing. But that's not enough. Something yet greater awaits us. And that's what we see in Revelation 21 and 22 where we will be face to face with God. That's what the goal of the Gospel is. Yes. And our last blessing before we go to the table, which is the blessing of God's eternal comfort. That's verse 4. 
And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Friends, what's being promised here is that we will be eternally and sufficiently comforted by God himself in a way that doesn't disregard our suffering on this side of glory, but that takes it all into account and weighs it accurately and puts it in comparison with the comfort and reality of the eternal glory that God has reserved for us in Christ and the comfort that he extends and God's glory and those gifts will completely outweigh our suffering. But I want you to notice something. God wipes every tear from the eyes of the saints. You see that? He doesn't delegate that work. He takes that work up personally. And it's every tear. It's every sadness. It's every occasion for grief. It's every loss. And every single one of them, friends, will be answered amply by God's comfort in His presence. That is amazing. There are a lot of tears on this side of glory. There's a lot of mourning. There's a lot of crying. There's a lot of death. And there's a lot of pain. And God knows that that's our experience. And He is wanting us to know that the day is coming when we will be in His presence and we will be comforted by Him. You have many wise. I know that. You have many wise. And what this text, so do I, by the way. And what this text calls us to do, what this image, this glorious promise calls us to do, friends, is to bring our wise to the feet of this promise and to leave them there and to take up that promise as the shield and stay of our hearts. It's an amazing promise of comfort. But friends, I want you to see something about this as we move to the table. And it's this. It is amazing enough to me to think that one day there will no longer be any death. That one day there will no longer be any grieving or mourning or pain. That is amazing. And that God will comfort us from those things. But, but what makes me even more amazed is that every single one of those tears, every single one of those sufferings, those deaths, those mournings, every single one of those pains is the result of our sin. Those are our sins that cause that. And God is coming in and healing us from the consequences of our sin. Friends, that is exactly the story of this table. It is our sin and it is Christ's suffering in our place. It is our sin and Christ bearing the load of God's wrath in our place. And God has given us great comfort already in giving us a Redeemer 
Has he not? I mean, no Christian should be walking around with any guilt. Guilt is not a feeling, a friend told me this week. I was on the phone with a buddy who's a pastor up in Virginia. And he said, Francis, guilt is not a feeling. It's a fact. And either it's true or it's false. And if you're in Christ, it's false. That was comforting to me. To have somebody get in my grill. Look at the table and what it represents. It represents God's gift of comfort to you. It is the down payment for all these blessings. It is the purchase price more than the down payment for all the blessings that we look upon this morning in our text. So let's, let's pray. Father, there is uh, too much territory here to cover all in one morning. And I pray now that as we go to the table that you would grant us great grace to feed upon Christ by faith to be strengthened in your Son. And Lord, to be conformed yet more degrees of glory to the next, to his magnificent image. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.